to spell it even. Um, that last song we sang, heaven's going to be a lot like that. Even a little more vibrant, even a little louder as we cast our crowns around the throne. What I'd like to do this morning is give you a, an overview of what I call the characteristics of the New Testament church. It's going to be a broad overview of many aspects of the New Testament. We're not going to look at any one single passage. We may go so quickly, we may not even open our Bibles. But we're going to talk a lot about what the Scripture says. In your bulletin, there are some notes. I usually recommend taking notes because I could ask you a tough question, and that is, Pastor Niall, what did he speak on two weeks ago? Most of you probably won't remember. Experts even say, what I say now in the next hour, hour, hour and ten minutes. We do have a pastor in the Free Church in Wisconsin that normally speaks an hour to an hour and ten minutes every Sunday. I promise not to do that this morning. But what I do say in the next half hour, chances are you're going to remember less than two minutes of it a day from now. And a week from now, you'll be lucky to remember 20 seconds of what I say. That's just what the experts tell us. So I recommend taking some notes that will help you remember. And it will look really spiritual as you do it. We're going to look at the characteristics of the New Testament church. I spent 35 years in the insurance industry before coming into this position. I was, like many of you, a member of a church for all those years. I fortunately had the opportunity to be an elder in the church there in the Stevens Point Plover area and had a front row seat of what God had chosen to do in that small church in the Stevens Point area. It started in 1976 with eight families. Excuse me, 1972 with eight families. My wife and I moved there when, in 1976, and it was probably 40 to 60 people with that many college students because we met in the basement of the YMCA right across some of the dorms. But in the last 20 years, that church has grown double-digit growth, most of it conversion growth, even though there is in any church there's always some what we call transfer growth, people who are already Christians and for whatever reason are started to attend your particular church. But fortunately, most of it there was conversion growth, seeing new people come to Christ. And today that church is pushing about 1,800 people in two communities. And it's been fun to see God build the church there in a great way. And I believe God wants to do that every way. One of my favorite authors says, the church is the hope of the world. But is that really true? Is that really true? 
56% of the people in the United States claim no religious affiliation. 56%. 40% consider themselves regular attenders of a church. But on any given Sunday, like today, only 17% of the United States population will be in church. And only between 7 to 9% of those people will be in what we call an evangelical church. In a broad sense, evangelical. Evangelical meaning they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that through him and only through him can we be forgiven and granted eternal life. And that the scriptures reveal that to us and are inerrant and truthful in all that they say. If we have that broad brush definition of evangelical, and I guess one other aspect I should add to that is that we personally need to respond to the gospel through faith. If we take those elements, only 7 to 9% of the U.S. population is evangelical. In Wisconsin, we're slightly better than that in, in some respects. More people attend church in Wisconsin than the national average, but we have fewer people who would claim to be evangelical. And in Oneida County, right here, in Oneida County, 43% of, the, of Oneida County claims no religious affiliation. That's almost one out of two. And you're right on the national average of 7% are evangelical in their chosen affiliation. So is the church really the hope of the world? If only 7% have appropriately responded? There's a young woman who grew up in uh, West Texas, in rural West Texas. Her name was Annie Jackson. When she was five years old, her father, who was an elder in a church and loved the church there in West Texas, decided that God was, or realized that God was calling him into the ministry. And he quit his job, moved his family, went to seminary. He and his wife and their three children, Annie was the youngest. And they moved and went to seminary, and the family had to scrimp and save and get by due to, to pay the cost of seminary, let alone him not having a job. He graduated from seminary, got his first pastorate again in West Texas area. And three to four years into his ministry, what he considered to be a close friend turned on him through a series of events, started accusing him of things. Annie's father felt betrayed, Ron Jackson felt betrayed by his friend, didn't know how to handle that. Life in the church was becoming very awkward and difficult because of the accusations of this so-called good friend. Ron didn't know what to do. He resigned his position of the church and left. About a year later, he, another church contacted him and offered him a position as their pastor. But that church had the history of churning pastors every three to five years. 
But he thought, well, it couldn't be any worse than this last church experience. So they moved there. And three years into the ministry, right on cue, a minority in the church started accusing him of things, blaming him for the lack of growth in the church and a variety of things. At one congregational meeting, it got so ugly when these people stood up and publicly called him names and accused him of things. The elders, instead of dealing with that minority of people in an appropriate way, didn't know what to do, and they asked him to leave. So here was Annie Jackson at that time, 16 years old. Her father, as pastor who loved the Lord, had been basically thrown out of two churches. And she swore that she would never, ever go to church again. Is the church the hope of the world? in those situations? Well, let's see if it is. Let me go into that overview of the New Testament. The New Testament is an interesting period of time. We have the three-year basic ministry of Jesus Christ, and then we have, following his ascension back to heaven, a 60 to 65-year period of the New Testament culminating in the vision of John in Revelation. What I'd like to do again is give an overview of that, kind of like flying at 30,000 feet, and we'll do it in the next 20 or so minutes. I'd like us to focus on three things. The people, the purpose, and the power behind the church. A new people with a purpose and a divine power. A new people of Christ followers. People who were redeemed, justified, forgiven, born again into the family of God. Reconciled back to their creator. Through faith in Jesus Christ and only through faith did they find their solution to their separation from God. A solution to their sin problem reconciling themselves back to God only through the grace of God experienced and revealed in Jesus Christ. His work on the cross makes all of that possible. He pays the penalty for our sin. It says in Isaiah, all of our iniquities were laid on him. And he paid the penalty for those sins. He experienced separation from God at that moment that we would never have to. So these believers in Jesus Christ were born into a newness of life. They became new people, born again. It says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Not only were they reborn, but they had a leader now, Jesus Christ. And they responded to his call to follow me. They followed him. They were Christ followers. Not only were they Christ followers, but they were Christ followers in community with each other. They were born into the family of God. It was no longer Jew or Gentile, but one new people, no longer male or female, slave or free. They were unified 
in their common faith or in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, it says they had all things in common as this new people. They enjoyed each other. They served each other. They honored one another. They strove for the truth of the gospel side by side, it says in Philippians. And in Peter, Paul writes, or excuse me, in Peter, Paul writes. That's good. That's good. I love that, yes. Peter writes in his book, the first letter, they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Together they become what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, they are the body of Christ. They have responded to Jesus' command to love one another. When we were thinking about building a new building in Stevens Point in our church there, I think it was about 98, we had, we had outgrown the YMCA, we had built a building, we outgrew that, we moved back into an elementary school to meet, and we outgrew that, and we finally said, well, maybe God wants us to build another building. And so I was in a Rotary Club, local Rotary Club. I uh, was a Rotarian there for about 19, 20 years. And there was a young architect in the, in the club who I was getting to know. I thought it would be great to maybe have him help design the church for us and give him some business. He was new in his, in his firm. But he had he'd grown up in a, in a main church, mainline ch- denominational church. I got the impression he didn't go to a church a lot growing up. But he used to talk about church being kind of just something you had to do once in a while. But so as we dialogued, it was obvious he didn't really understand what we wanted or needed in a building. So I invited him. I said to why don't you just come and visit a couple? We were in the elementary school at that time. Why don't you come and just sit in the back row and just watch and listen and kind of get to meet us a little bit and do that a couple times. And he did that. He came three weeks. It was really interesting. He sit and he literally sat in the back row, and he watched. And we got together for lunch after that, after the third week. And I said to him, "I said, well, what'd you learn? What'd you see?" And I'll never forget the words out of his mouth. First line is, "You guys actually like each other." And he said, "My experience was we were the last ones in the door and the first ones out." His dad said, "You know, his success on Sunday morning was being the first one out of the parking lot." He says, well, you guys stand around and talk, some of you, for a half hour or an hour. And I said, yeah, we like each other. We enjoy each other. We want to be together. Build us a building in which we can do that. It was real kind of interesting dialoguing with him during that process. Community. Christ followers in community. And developing character as followers of Jesus Christ. We are told in Ephesians we are to put off our old nature, put on the new, become Christ-like. And we need each other. We need the community to do that because on our own, that is so unlikely to happen. Paul writes, we are encouraged to walk in love as children in the light and the fruit of the Spirit, to be worthy of our calling, to be worthy of the gospel, to be worthy of our Lord. That new people in community developing character becoming Christ-like, a new people.
But they were a new people with a purpose. Now, it's real interesting that when Rick Warren from Saddleback Church in California wrote his book back in the uh, late 80s, I believe it was, or early 90s, about the purpose-driven church, there was a lot of negative reaction to that. But his, it was his desire, I believe, after reading some of his literature and others that followed, that he really wanted the church to be intentional. To be intentional about what they were doing for the Lord. But there's been some negative reaction felt of people who felt that his goal was just to change the church. And change was bad or negative. And so they reacted. And so purpose kind of took on a negative connotation. But in the NIV translation, you will see the words purpose 52 times, the word plan 94 times, the word goal 6, the word mission, all in references to God's purpose, God's plan, God's goal. In Ephesians 1 it says, For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven on earth. And I believe the purpose of God ultimately is to glorify Jesus Christ. But I think we can break that down in three ways, and we'll see that in the New Testament. One is to be and to share a message. We are to, as his body, we are his representation on earth. We are to live out the message of God. And we are to verbalize it, to verbalize the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Romans says, we are that message to all people. And in Ephesians, Paul writes, we are that message even to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That the body, the church, is that message. It's a fourfold message. A message attested to by our lives and our works of good deeds. It's a message of the resurrection. If you look at Paul's and Peter's, especially Peter's early sermons, and especially on this, his first sermon that he ever gave on Pentecost Sunday, there are five references in that message to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were attesting to the resurrection. The resurrection is proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be and is. The God in the flesh. It was also a message of repentance. When the people responded to the message, they said, what shall we now do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Paul says exactly the same things in Acts 17 and Acts 26. A message of repentance. When God created us, he meant us to be in relationship with him, where we could dialogue with and actually be in his presence. And we see that in early Genesis. But what happened? People, Adam and Eve, turned. And we have it, each and every one of us have chosen to go our own way, do it our way, walk our own path, and we have walked away from God. Repentance is basically saying, hey, I'm going the wrong way. 
and I need to turn back through Jesus and enter back into that relationship by His grace and have that relationship with Him, that reconciliation. The New Testament calls all of us to repentance, whether it be that one first time that we might trust Jesus or on a daily basis, we are to live a life of repentance and a message of repentance. It's a message of that reconciliation. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ, Christ making his appeal through us. We are entrusted with a message of reconciliation. Jesus came in grace and truth, truth that we need to be reconciled through him and grace that he provided the way through his death on the cross. And it's also a message of return. Jesus promised that he would return. In John 14, Jesus talks about that he goes and prepares a place for us and he will come again and take us so that we might be with him. Paul picks up on that same message in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thess 4 and 5, Philippians 2. It's the promise that we as a people of hope are hoping and trusting in his promise to return. That song we sang that you, the volume increased in this room. That's our hope. That Christ will return and we will spend eternity with him. But you know, it's interesting in the New Testament, the promise of the return was also a warning. And Paul made that very clear in his message to the, to the people of Athens in Acts 17 that Jesus was returning to judge and that they needed to turn back to God through him. The writer of Hebrews picks up that same theme, that Jesus was returning to judge. Not only do we have the purpose of a message, a fourfold message, but we have the purpose of maturing those who believe. We are to disciple one another. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man that we may present every man mature in Christ. Discipling is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, bringing people to maturity, to, to the fullness of the likeness of Christ. It's an ongoing process. Jesus called the original apostles to follow him then to abide in him, and then to go and make disciples. Maturing believers is part of the purpose of God. But let me take that a step further and say a third purpose is to multiply believers and churches. If you read through the early part of Acts, you take the first half of the book of Acts, about chapter 14, you will see 14 to 15 references to the growth of the church, numerically. 3,000 on Pentecost. Then by chapter 4, it's 5,000 men. So you assume the church has probably grown to be 15 to 20,000 people in total. And consistently through the book of Acts, you see that the church greatly increased or multiplied. And it says people were coming to the Lord daily. And, and the, that reaches a climax almost by chapter 17 where the people 
talk about in the city of Thessalonica, they talk about Paul and his band of men who were carrying out these missionary journeys. They make the claim that these men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. The church was multiplying. We are to be multiplying. In Genesis chapter 1, what did God say to Adam and Eve? We all know that. Let me just read it to you. Because I'm going to read a couple passages. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and what? And multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And he goes on. So God said to his creation to multiply. God said through Deuteronomy to his chosen people on the bank of the Jordan, as they were about to enter the promised land, he says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do what I have commanded you, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. as the Lord your God has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. God said to his creation to multiply. God said to his chosen people to multiply as they enter the promised land. And what does he say to his church in our day and age? He says to the church, go and make disciples of all the nations. We are to multiply as well. We are to multiply ourselves One author I just recently read talks about being backyard missionaries within our neighborhood, with our friends. We are to multiply ourselves. As churches, we are to multiply ourselves. As a district that you you support with your prayers and finances, and I say thank you for that, we just recently restaffed. Ray Olson was our director of church multiplication. He retired, turned 65 this past summer, left the district position, and we hired Scott Sterner, a church planter, a successful church planter who lives in Madison, to be our new director of church multiplication. We, as a denomination, or more literally an association of like-minded churches, we want to multiply. We want to see you as individuals multiply, we want to see churches like yourselves to multiply, to sponsor church planting efforts. We hope you'll join us in doing that. The church has a, had a purpose, but it also had a divine power to carry that out. And even though I'd love to spend a lot of time on this, I, as I'm watching that clock, the hand just keeps moving in the back of the room there. So I'm going to have to kind of short, shorten this portion. But I love the section in the Gospels of John 14, 15, and 16, and into 17, which is that called the upper room discourse, where Jesus has pulled his, his band together, his disciples, that he's now going to send out into the world to make disciples, he calls them together, and he says, hey, it's to, my, to your advantage that I go away. And disciples are what? Do they understand that? No. They're confused by that. 
how can it be to their advantage that Jesus is going away? Because he says, I'm going to send the counselor to be with you, the advocate, the Holy Spirit to be with you. Jesus had promised later on in Matthew 28, he says, when he gave the Great Commission, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been granted to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He said from a position of ultimate authority, he's saying, go and make disciples. And then he closes that by saying, and what? And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the ages. Now, how is he going to do that when he's leaving? Because obviously he was sending the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to live within us. That's an amazing part of that passage in John 14, is that he, said, he says the Holy Spirit will not only be with you, he will be in you. Do you realize that the power, all authority and power of the heavenly God that we worship lives and resides in us through his Spirit? Here's a quick example of that power. I have on my hand a little ink dot. I can barely see it. I try to make it as almost as small as possible. You probably can't even see it. But in the size of this room, if I open my hand up and that little dot represents in the size of the universe as measured today by scientists, from one edge of the universe to the other, right now is estimated to be five. Remember this number. It'll be on a quiz somewhere, someday. 558, followed by 21 zeros. That's the miles that we can now measure, the scientists can measure, the distance of the universe. And in comparison to that, Earth is about the size of this ink dot. Now, I'm not trying to convince anybody about how God created or anything of that nature. But I'm saying God created with his spoken word a universe that vast, that awesome, with that much power he created. And that power lives within us through his presence of the Holy Spirit. We have a divine power that divine power brought by the Holy Spirit, residing in the Holy Spirit, will be three things. It will always be Christ-centered. It will all, the role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, to reproduce his life in us, and to empower the message of the gospel. It will always be Christ-centered. It will always come with conviction. If you read in Acts and Pete, I know you have Peter and Stephen and Paul, the conviction they had. It says they spoke the word boldly. That came from the Holy Spirit. They did it in the face of opposition from the Jewish authorities, from the Gentile authorities, the Roman authorities, Stephen, even to the point of death. And it was verified by signs and wonders brought by the power of the Holy Spirit. And eight times in the book of Acts, it refers to the signs and wonders done by the apostles. Now, I used to be really troubled by that. Because I thought, the, Holy, the same Holy Spirit lives in me that lives in Peter and Paul and, and Stephen. I don't see myself doing a lot of miracles. Have you done any miracles today, lately? 
I haven't. I used to think about that, and I go, what's wrong with me? And I think in, through prayer and study of the Scriptures, I come to realize the miracle is the change in my life that I can tell people about, and the miracle of my good deeds that I can do for and with people because of the change that God has wrought in my life. And I trust the same is true in your life. A profound divine power. And lastly, that divine power produces change. God is not comfortable with the status quo. God is not comfortable with the current number of believers. God says he wants all men to be saved. He wants my life to change. He wants your life to change, to become more like Jesus. Sometimes that change is almost explosive. It's a great power that God brings to change. In the church, it's a power to love one another, serve one another, grow together, to reach out to our communities, to share the message, to make other disciples, to multiply. Those are things that will prompt and cause change. As a church, we really need to welcome change, pray for change. Pray for the outpouring of God's Spirit in our communities. Some people have said, have questioned, is the church the hope of the world? Some authors have said the church, instead of being explosive and, and dynamic, that it's become too prosperous in the United States, the American church, too content, too complacent, too inward-focused, too politically involved, too divided, too focused on just a pleasant Sunday morning experience. Pray that we never become complacent as a church. That we never stifle God's purposes that He has the power to do in our lives. I hope you never come become too complacent. Annie Jackson swore off the church at age 16. Said she would never ever go to church again. When she was 25 years old, and she held to that. When she was 25 years old, had not gone to church since she was 16. Moved to Kansas City, got a job there in communications. She was a gifted artist and, and communicator. She got a, a, a good job with a secular company there in Kansas City, but she accepted an invitation to live with a, a friend to... Uh, share rent and that sort of thing. It just so happened that person attended a pretty dynamic evangelical church in the Kansas City area that was a satellite of a much larger church in Oklahoma City. And that friend started saying, Annie, you've got to try church again. Come with me some Sunday. And Annie finally did. But it was a church that she'd never experienced before where people truly loved one another. We're careful not to backbite and gossip and accuse. That they really wanted to have an impact 
in their world. Annie got excited that this is what she had hoped church would be. She got involved, started to grow again in her own Christian life. After a couple of years there, it was such a transformation in her life that the church asked her to come on staff and be their director of communications. And she's still there, working for the Lord in a positive church experience. And she even went on to write a book about her experience called Mad Church Disease. But it's a book full of hope of what the church can be. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask you that we, your people, can be what you want us to be. We can be the hope of the world. Lord, because there's no other hope. God, you have created the perfect solution when you sent your son Jesus to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That is the only solution, Lord, for our sin. We know that. And we as your church represent that now today. God, help us to do that well. Help us to do it in a way that people will see Jesus in us individually and in us as a church. And through us, understand the gospel in a way that they will be drawn to and respond to. That we can fulfill what you said to creation, to go and multiply. What you said to your chosen people on the bank of the Jordan River, go and multiply. And what you've said to us as your church, to go and make disciples of all nations. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.